I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, and we're in chapter 9 this morning. Last week we had our communion service, and we covered the first seven verses of chapter 9. It's a very familiar passage having to do with a man that was born blind, and Jesus spitting on the ground and mixing that with dirt to, to form mud and then putting that on the eyes of this man who was born blind, sending him down to the pool of Siloam, as it was called. And then as we read, he came back seeing. And just to think your way through what that might be like, uh, not only to be that man, but maybe his family, to witness something that really we have no precedent for in the scriptures. We can go back and look. Someone being blind, especially from birth, and then being able to see was a miracle that had not yet been produced. But what's left of chapter 9, from verse 8 all the way to the end, really consists of conversations that take place as a result of this miracle. And there are actually five separate conversations. And the first three of them uh, set up the fourth, which is where the, the Pharisees uh, determine what to do as a result of this miracle. And the fifth happens to be a conversation again with this man who was healed and Jesus who healed him. Uh, I think it best for us to read through this. Um, it's not complicated. This is narrative. It's not uh, deep, uh, packed together theological uh, thinking that we'll have to take apart with lots of effort. It's basically just in story format. So it's easy to put this into the hopper, as it were, and uh, then we'll ask the Lord for some help. And we'll work our way through those conversations, and then we'll let the conclusion of the actual chapter... Uh, be the conclusion for us. That'll be the takeaway. That'll be the how do I obey what I'm trying here to understand. So let's read through this. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others says no, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Verse 10, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind. How does he then see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know. 
nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you always also want to be his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God listens to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a passage of scripture that is lengthy. We've got a lot to read about this story. You give us more than in other stories. Lord, we ask that these things will make sense to us, that you'll open our eyes to the meaning of this passage so that we can be obedient to it. Lord, be the teacher. Give us the grace to be a good student. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I think it might be most helpful, and different people approach learning different ways, but sometimes when you've got a lengthy passage, at least one this size, to work through in a limited amount of time, Sometimes a, a certain way to focus on it can be helpful with moving through uh, the material. I think the most intriguing way, or one of the most intriguing ways, is to just go off the questions that are asked here. There's at least a dozen of them, maybe 15. Lots of question marks. So all the sentences that end with a question mark, I think help us uh, as far as a window into the thinking process of these people that are going at each other here. And it's, most of the questions are up front. They're from the Pharisees, some from the neighbors. And then at a point, uh, and I could hear you reading along, uh, when the question is put from this man back to them, I told you already, what, do you want to be one of his followers? He knows they don't. And that really put them in a corner, and they came out punching. 
and with character assassination. But the, the drama here in this passage, I think, is wrapped up with the question. So we'll look at this with some emphasis on that. The first one comes in verse 8, and this is a result of the neighbors who had seen this man. They knew he was a beggar. He was a beggar because he was blind. And they asked the question, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And I think we would too. The idea that somebody was blind from birth and now he can see would be a little hard to swallow. We're, we're, we're natural-born skeptics. We'd want to ask some questions, and that's what they do. Then the next question to follow up after he's told them, I am him. Others had said, well, he's like him. After they've got the, the who taken care of, all right, he says he's him. He looks like him. Maybe it's him. They go to the how question. And really the rest of the story has to do with the how question. Okay, how did he do this? Because inquiring minds would want to know. We like to know how things work. And a miracle of this magnitude, uh, it begs the question. Now we learn from this guy around these questions uh, that he likely had little knowledge of Jesus beforehand. He just refers to him as the man called Jesus. And as far as his knowledge of Christ's whereabouts, he doesn't know. And if you think about it, he was sent to the pool of Siloam with the mud on his eyes, still quite blind. So he hasn't seen Jesus. He's heard his voice, but he wouldn't recognize him because he's never seen him. So it's not as if he's hiding things. He doesn't know where he is. By the time we get to verse 14, we learn that it's the Sabbath day. John tells us that, and that's where the trouble comes in. This has happened before with his healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda where he told him to take his mat and, and walk, and that was work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And from this we get to the next question, which has to do with the second conversation. The neighbors took him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees began to ask, and as they hear what has happened, there seems to be a division that, that crops up out of these Pharisees. The first asking, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? If he's broken the Sabbath, then he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, why in the Lord would the God of the universe give him the power to produce such a fantastic miracle? And that is the hang-up for one side of this equation. Uh, it's not the first time the Pharisees have been divided over Jesus and what they think of him, uh, but that's the first group. This, the second group, they want to say, well, how in the world could he do it if God's not working with him? Forget the fact that he's a sinner. He made a man who was born blind see. So how can we say that God's not with him? So which is it? Is God with him or is God not with him? And as far as the breaking of the Sabbath goes, um, maybe just to color in your mind how, how ridiculous of a technicality this actually is that they're arguing over that would qualify or disqualify this man to have the hand of God on him in order to produce a miracle, at least from their thinking. This was similar to the prohibition on kneading dough on the Sabbath. You can't mix flour with water. That's work. And they look at making mud like 
the same way. Mixing ingredients requires effort and work. Now, there's nowhere in the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the, the written law, where we'll find something like that as far as this instance. But as far as the oral traditions along the way that they would add and they considered to be just as um, important and binding as the written law, there was a law that you couldn't spit on Sunday. And the reason why you couldn't spit on Sunday was because if you spit the wrong way, it might run downhill. And as the spit runs downhill, it will gather dirt, making a mixture. And even though it was an accident, it's still your fault. You worked because you spit. Now, we laugh at that. They're not laughing at it. This man's a sinner. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be Jesus. He can't be Christ. Well... What we're looking at, and here, I, I want to add this here, and this is going to be a theme that will be more uh, visible as we move along. What did John say he was writing this book for? These things are written that you might believe. Well, what we're finding out is this testimony of John to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you might have life in His name is set against a backdrop of unbelief. There's as much unbelief, if not more unbelief, in the Gospel of John than there is belief. And we're going to get to see unbelief on display as we've never seen it. Where they're worried more about a man who spit and, and made mud and healed a man from blindness than whether or not this is a miracle, a sign from God, a message from God. Is he him? Is this true? That to them is not something they even care about. So, as far as breaking the Sabbath, according to their oral tradition, yes, he has. But as far as violation of the Sabbath as the man, God, who created it, no, he hasn't. Now, the other group wondered, Sabbath breaker as he is, how can he perform miraculous signs? And what's interesting about this is uh, the way it's said right here, it sounds an awful lot like Nicodemus who met Jesus in the night and his opening line was, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs, miracles that you do unless God is with him. Right? So I'd like to think that maybe on that side of the argument, Nicodemus is present, perhaps. Either way, the men are divided. They can't get around the factuality of the situation. That's what's funny to me about it. They want to discredit the guy. No, he can't because he's a sinner. But the, the guy, I mean, okay, you know this had to happen. How many fingers am I holding up? All right, try it again. All right, who's giving him the answers? Now let's do it again one more time. There's no way that they can get around the fact that he can see. And there's no way that they can get around from the fact that they all know that the previous day he couldn't. So they've got this real miracle here. And it seems that they get more aggravated the more trouble they have at sweeping it under a rug. So in verse 17, we see another question. This is the Pharisees to the man who was healed. What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? 
And he says he's a prophet. Now we've heard that before. Uh, the woman at the well in chapter 4, after Jesus tells her things that nobody else should know, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is code for you know stuff that a normal person wouldn't know. You're, you're, you're more than the average man here. Someone's giving you things. And that really is the first steps in someone whose eyes have been opened spiritually. They begin to recognize that Jesus is no normal man but speaks with authority. That his message is from God. It's an early step. It's not the gospel yet. But, I mean, you watch this man gradually. He started this man named Jesus, who I think now is a prophet. And later on, he's going to say, how in the world could he do this unless God's given him some special gift? And then when Jesus talks to him face to face, he worships him as his creator. It's a, it's a process. It's gradual. But we see it right, right here in the story. He says the same thing the woman said. And then we get to the third leg of this interrogation. As far as the man who's healed, Jesus is more than a guru at this point. But uh, as far as the Pharisees, he's, he's a fake and a phony. So they try another way. Verse 18, the Jews aren't buying it. They didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. That's probably pretty good witnesses, wouldn't you say? The parents. And uh, they asked them, here's a question, actually two, back to back. Is this your son who you say was born blind? And that, don't you love that, who you say? It's your, your opinion that he's born blind, mom and dad. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. He was born blind. How he sees, we don't know. So it doesn't appear that these parents were intimidated by the Pharisees' interrogation. And there was some threat that they could be thrown out or removed from the synagogue. And there's a lot of differing opinion as to how severe that was. Some would say you couldn't even buy food from other Jews if this happened. Others would say you just can't go to church. It's kind of like being shunned, where some would say it's more like being excommunicated. And it's hard for us to really nail that down, being it's not explained in Scripture. But it doesn't seem like they feel as if they've got to cough up everything they know. Because actually what happened, which they probably weren't there for it either. They don't know. They say, ask him. And what we do know about the way the synagogue and the temple worked. This kid couldn't go anyway. He's blind. If you had a deformity in your body, you couldn't go to the temple. Why? Well, because a deformity meant sinfulness. And you're a sinner, you can't go. You say, that's awful. Well, that's the way the system worked. Infirmities physically equaled sin. You can't come in. So they can't throw the boy out. He's already out. So ask him, he'll tell you. I'm not talking. I'm staying in. He's out. How this works, I'm, 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 it's hard to hear their tone of voice or know their motivation. But I don't think they're cowardly parents for not answering a question they know is going to be used against them in an unjust way. So for the second time, they, they call him. And uh, 
with, with actually no other leverage, they use this statement in verse 24, give glory to God, which is a way of saying stand up for the truth. That's a direct quote from the Old Testament. You remember Achan who stole something and hid it in his tent and the whole tribes are getting wiped out because of his sin and he is told, give God the glory. What have you done? Where have you hidden it? Tell the truth. And this is what they're telling the young man. We know that this man's a sinner. So there's something that doesn't add up. Tell us the truth. Tell us what you've been hiding so far. And this is probably the, the most dramatic, everyone's favorite line out of the whole thing. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. That's something I don't know because I can't see into his heart. But what I do know is I was blind and now I can see. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, I mean, what, what do you do when you have no case? You don't believe this militantly. You don't believe it. And you're trying your best to, to discredit it in front of everyone. But the truth is staring you in the face. And this young man isn't budging at all. In fact, he's, he's now playing with these people. I, I think that that's written in their own purpose. The Bible does include places where you're supposed to laugh. One thing I do know I was blind, now I see. So unbelief is on the ropes. They've got nothing left. Hoping this kid will contradict himself. They, they start going back to the why question. What did he do to you? Or how did he do it? How did he open your eyes? He answers, I told you already. Why do you want to hear it again is his question. Do you want to become his disciples? This infuriates them. They lose their decorum. They resort to character assassination. You were born in utter sin. You were blind. You were born blind because you were sinful. Your parents were sinful. You're less than us. Your testimony's garbage. R really, their elitism is on full display here. So the Pharisees leave it at that. You would teach us. And then they cast him out. For whatever that means. Verse 35, and this is where Jesus comes back. And the way this works is, is beautiful, I think. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Of course, Jesus knows everything. And having found him, do you find that interesting? Jesus was looking for him. This wasn't by chance. Um... Do you like the fact when you hear somebody's looking for you, they need you for something? Or somebody that you care about, you find cares about you? Um, I don't know, it might not work in all situations. We got some mothers in here probably love to have a day or two where nobody needs them for anything. And nobody says mommy at all. Uh, a vacation. But most of us are, are, are geared that way. We, we need each other. But to, to hear that the creator of the universe has looked for you and found you. That's what's happened. And what else does it say? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is an interesting way to put it. And it seems that this man doesn't exactly understand what Jesus means by this. Now we know what it means. We're the readers of this story, and we've, we've, we've got access to the whole thing. And as far as Judaism goes, this was a claim to deity. Sounds, 
we'd probably say son of God would, would clear it up for us quicker. Son of man sounds more human than God. But the way this works prophetically, this is a claim to deity. And the man answers, well, who is he? So he knows who the Son of Man is, but he doesn't know his identity. He responds with a respectful, Sir, uh, that I may believe. Would you tell me? I'm ready. You've got my attention and you have my trust. Jesus said to him, You have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. That's kind of similar to the way he's told others. Um, not unlike the, the woman at the well, not unlike after uh, the resurrection. What does this man do? He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And worship is more than a sign of respect. He's acknowledged him as creator. This man's been born again. Such contrast to the man at the pool of Bethesda who looks as if he's just indifferent to all this. Jesus warns him, don't go back to your old way. Sin no more. Something worse could happen to you. You could be dead spiritually, not just deformed physically. None of that here. And I almost want to, you, you, you could paraphrase this, I don't think with doing damage to what we've got, but just to think that this guy who hadn't seen the face of his mother until yesterday, or maybe that morning, is looking at the face of the Creator incarnate and is asked, do you believe that I am the Son of God? And he says, will you help me out here? And Jesus says, well, you're looking at me, aren't you? I just think that that's just like the Lord in the way that He opens our eyes. And see, here's where I'd want to transition this. We, we've been studying a story, a miracle about a man with physical eyeballs that didn't work. And what's remarkable about it is they were broken from birth, which Jesus isn't doing a miracle of restoration. He's fixing something. You know, you think of your car that's broke down. Well, I, I, I threw a piston, revving it up so much, impressing some people I didn't even like. So I've got to tear down the motor, replace the piston, the rings, probably a lot of other things, and I can get it working again. Well, let's just say that your engine never had pistons. You're going to have to fix that a different way. Instead of replacing things, you've got to buy stuff that wasn't there to start with. Think of it that way. This man isn't being corrected. He's being born as far as his capacity to see. Blindness in this story, at some part, and I don't know if you can just stick a finger right on the, the place where it happens, but the story starts out with physical sight and blindness as the object of the story, but it ends with Blindness having less to do with our eyeballs and more to do with our understanding. It's not limited to the body anymore. Uh, because Jesus goes on in verse 39 to say, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Okay? What does that mean? 
Well, verse 40 kind of helps us out a bit because if we didn't have verse 40, we might think he's saying, all right, I came to this earth to help fellows like this guy who couldn't see since he was born. Now he does. And I'm going to put some eyes out before I'm done. People won't be able to see. Uh, That doesn't make sense. Well, verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him, because they're still hanging around, said, are we also blind? And you know they can see. So they're not talking about their eyeballs. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what's going on here? Well, at this point, the blindness at the end of this story describes the general state of a person before the light of the world, which is Jesus, bursts in on them and illumines their understanding. In this case, those who do not see are those who imagine that they do see. If you take that and and go back through, it's all over the place. We're not his disciples, you are. We're Moses' disciples. We've got this figured out. We've had these rules since God wrote them with his finger on a tablet and gave it to Moses and we've kept them. We're not sinners. You are. You're wrong. We're right. We see. You're the one who doesn't get it. Now, who's blind going on? There's blindness spiritually and there's blindness physically. And they're not the same thing and they're different parties in this story. Let me see if I can, and quickly, because we're at the end here, give you something that will help tie this up in your head. Don't turn there. You probably know it already. You can write the reference down if you want it later. But in Matthew 5, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts out, I'll just read it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and this is the introduction to his sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that mean people don't have any money? No, he said spirit. And what that means is someone who doesn't see themselves as having much to offer in the idea of having anything worthy of approaching the presence of God. Talking spiritually here. Blessed is the man who doesn't think he's got Moses as his standard. Blessed is the guy who doesn't say, you're wrong, I'm right. We want to do that, don't we? Now there's the standard. Jesus sets up this sermon. And it's something I think we can all understand if we're honest with ourselves. Charles Spurgeon said, It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it's our supposed light that holds back His hand. And even though we know these things conceptually, you tell me, whose rules are you better at keeping? Somebody else's? the ones you make up. Go back to the playground if you need some help with this. You're just making up the rules as you go. Why? Because the other kid thinks his rule's better. Of course he's going to keep it. And of course he thinks yours is stupid. Right? Well, as Christians, do we keep God's rules better? Or do we occasionally, maybe even chronically, make up our own? We'll even take stuff that's called tradition and act like it's a rule. 
and then shun people who have the audacity to act like it could ever be done any other way. Right? We do this. Why? Because we don't see as good as we think we do. We need glasses sometimes. Jesus told a better story. You know, I've, I've been to a few uh, hockey games lately, and that's one thing I keep hearing over and over again. Ref needs glasses. Ref can't see. Well, this is the parable where Jesus tells the Pharisees they need glasses. And uh, he's telling a bunch of parables in Luke 18, and it gets to a next one. Luke sets it up this way. He also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that's clear enough, and treated others with contempt. So there's the, the litmus test. Here it goes. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, those are all bad things, or even like this tax collector, this dummy over here. you imagine that? He's praying in synagogue, temple, in church. And while he's praying, he's looking, and he finds somebody he thinks he's better than and thanks the Lord for it. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Sounds like he sees himself pretty clearly. Verse 14, Jesus speaking, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Why? Have you ever been in conversation with somebody carrying on and, and it's abundantly clear that what is at hand, your way is the wrong way and their way is the right way? Is that an exalting experience or a humbling experience? It's a humbling experience. I'm wrong. I thought I was right and I'm wrong. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is that? Because he gets to run around and say, ha, 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 I told you. Not in this context. In this context, the one who humbles himself doesn't walk off the fool with his mind made up and his, his, his mind shut like a steel trap. Not teachable. Can't learn anything. You know folks like that. That's the way we're born spiritually. You see, Jesus arrived on this planet full of people who were in no means ready to get rid of their sin or to become aware of their need. We've been fighting it since the garden. It's that woman you gave me. It's that snake that lied to me. Until God opens our eyes and we see the sinful state that we are in, we need no such salvation. You've got to be lost before you'll ever be saved. That's how this works. So when he says it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, what he's saying is they've got a lot of things propping them up. It'll be a long time before they see themselves as actually needing something like me. 
It's the same through the scriptures. So the question at the end of this, it's almost as if it looks like the whole purpose for the message has to do with this man. But it looks like the Lord has had this man and he will keep him forever. What lingers at the end is that question with the Pharisees. Are we blind too? And he says, if you were just blind, then it wouldn't be a problem. Because if you knew you were blind, you'd be all right. It's the fact that you think you can see that will keep you away from what I have to offer. So the question we we end this with, the one you take home with you and use for yourself or for someone else, where does your sight come from? If you can see, I'm not talking about your eyeballs. If you understand, where'd you get it? Is this what you gathered from other people? Or does this come straight down from the architect as part of the owner's manual? The God who made us and then sent his son to remind us. One of them is true sight, true reality, true understanding, way, truth, the life. And the means by which no man comes to Christ but the Father, excuse me. And the other is the same old stuff that was introduced in a garden long ago. Oh, don't worry about that. You'll see like he sees. We haven't seen since. We've been blind. Whose sight are you seeing from? Where did the attitudes come from from these men praying in the temple? You got two men praying. One of them is blind. The other can see. Where'd they get that? If you've ever been able to see your need for Jesus, did you make that up? Or did he open your eyes? And if it's complicated, just use your children. Did you have to teach them how to be mean? Argue with their brothers and sisters? Lie to you? Want what's best for themselves first? You have to teach them how to be kind. You have to open their eyes through training. And still, that sin nature is as present as ever. What we need is for Jesus to open our eyes. And if we ask Him, I believe He'll do it. That's what He came to do, right? People who can't see, I'm going to let them see. And then the people who can see, think they can see, I'm going to help them see that they can't. That's why I came. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need sight. You're the light of the world, and your light will dispel our darkness. We thank you for the themes, easy way you, you chose to tell us the truth. Lord, may we that see be able to winsomely invite others to come and see, to check out the Bible. Jesus, what he has to say. To weigh it against others, what other people are saying. But to ask you, to venture and ask to the creator of the universe, open my eyes that I might see. And Lord, as we understand, we ask that you give us the ability to obey what we know to be right, what we know to be true. Thank you for time together in your house. 
Lord, may we take these things from here and use them. We ask all this in your name. Amen.